National League Championship. They have beaten the Padres 4-3, and they celebrate on their home turf as the Phillies of the 2022 NL Champs. From WHYY and Billy Penn, it is hitting season. Hey there, podcast pals. I'm your host, John Stolnes from The Good Fight. You can follow me on Twitter, at John Stolnes. What a game on Wednesday. Man, did that feel like a dry run for the playoffs? Sure sure felt like it was getting managed that way, and those two teams wanted that series finale on Wednesday, but the Phillies and Braves uh, finishing up their three-game series. We're going to talk about the last two games, including the 6-5 to five win in 10 innings here on Wednesday. Dramatic win, a spirit-lifting victory for the Phillies as they come home, get, getting ready to play uh, their final three series of the season. Uh, I'm also going to talk to Kevin Stocker. He's going to stop by. Uh, of course, Philly's color analyst for the radio uh, works with Scott Fransky and does a terrific job over there. I'm excited to talk to Kevin about uh, what he saw so far this season and what he sees ahead for the Phils over the last uh, week and a half of the season. Uh, we spoke on uh, Tuesday morning uh, before the games on Tuesday and Wednesday, so we didn't get into any of the things uh, that happened uh, in the first two games. But uh, we'll talk about that, and we'll also talk a little bit about now that we've got down to the last 10 days of the season, some of the season-ending awards where, you know, who's, you know, what are some races still to be determined other than the National League wildcard teams, and what does the National League MVP race look like? What does the National League Cy Young race look like? We'll just dive into that a little bit here on this edition of Hit and Season, but let's jump into this final game against the Braves, and what a game again on Wednesday. Just the Phillies, it feels like every time they get the Braves in a game where it's late and close and extra innings, the Braves find a way to win. And that's the sign of a really good team. Atlanta, I think, has a little bit more talent than the Phillies do. Their bullpen, such as it is, is a little bit more reliable than Philadelphia's bullpen at the moment. But the Phillies finally win a late and close game against the Braves, 6-5 to five in 10 innings, and take two out of three in Atlanta. They finish the year with a winning record in the Braves' home park, 4-3. and three. And so you know that if the Phillies win their wildcard round, they're going to go into Atlanta, and they're going to have to play games 1 and 2 there. But they know that they can go into Atlanta, and they can steal a game. That's all you really want in that kind of a situation, just like they did last year. Went into game one, stole that game against Max Fried, and then came home and took care of business. Now, uh, the Braves won the season series 8-5, to and so uh, the Braves actually did very well against the Phillies at Citizens Bank Park. But a lot of those games, again, went into extra innings. Uh, Could have gone either way. Seesaw battle, lucky break here, bad break there. You know, those one-run games, those extra inning games, sometimes it just comes down to one little play, one pitch, one one thing. I think as we watch these two teams play each other this year, especially here at the end of the season, I think we can look at these two teams and say they're, they're not that far from each other. I think the Braves are the more talented team. The 162-game schedule generally will lay that bare. But you get these two teams in a five-game series, and all bets are off because the Phillies aren't afraid of the Braves. That Braves lineup is is simply unbelievable. But the Phillies believe that they can match them homer for homer. And since August 1st, the Phillies have homered more often than the Braves have. Their offense has been just as prolific as Atlantis has. So I think that's the takeaway from these Braves series over the last couple of weeks here is that even though they lost three of four at home to Atlanta, they they very easily could have won three of four. 
in that series. And you could, you could argue that the Braves could have won two with two out of three in this series. It's just when they get, when they play each other, the games are really tense. They have gone into extra innings a number of different times, but these, these games are usually pretty close. I know the first two games of the series, they were a little bit more lopsided, but uh, the game that we saw on Wednesday, a little bit more indicative of how these teams have played against each other this year. And it was great for the Phillies to finally, finally win an extra inning game against this team with the win. On Wednesday, the Phillies' magic number to clinch a playoff spot is now seven over the Diamondbacks, Cubs, and Marlins, uh, which leaves the Phillies a really good chance to clinch that top wild card seed, uh, which of course means they get home field advantage in the wild card round at Citizens Bank Park, either against the Mets during this upcoming four game series or against the Pirates uh, in the in a three game series uh, next week. But if you're watching this game, as I one of the things that I would that I really took notice of was how much it seemed like Rob Thompson was using this as almost a dress rehearsal for the playoffs. He was treating this game like it was a playoff game. Um, and I think the key to the, the the first time you saw that that was really the case was Aaron Nola starting the sixth inning, and, and we're going to talk about Aaron Nola's start, a very encouraging start for Aaron Nola. The first time we've been able to say that since that start against the Cardinals uh, four starts ago. But an, but I think what was interesting was that he had Jose Alvarado in the bullpen ready to start warming up, lightly tossing as Aaron Nola started the sixth inning. He was not going to allow Aaron Nola to have a meltdown inning because the Phillies had already built up a four to nothing lead thanks to an RBI single by Alec Bohm in the first. Uh, and then you had two Nick Castellanos home runs in this game. And of course, Castellanos had the great play in the outfield. We're going to talk about that in a second, too. But just a, a huge game from Nick Castellanos in this one to give them a four to nothing lead early. And then Aaron Nola gives a runaway in the fourth, gives a runaway in the fifth, uh, got into a little, got in, a lot of base runner in the sixth inning, but was able to get out of it. But the fact that Thompson had Alvarado warming up in the sixth inning in case Nola got into trouble, told you all you needed to know about how badly Rob Thompson wanted to win this game. And then after that, he used all his high leverage relievers in the situations you would expect him to do so in the playoffs. So you had the formula there, right? Aaron Nola gives you six innings of two-run baseball. You have a 4-2 to lead going into the last third of the game. And you're going to have to win some games in the playoffs 4-2. to you're going to have to win some games in the playoffs 3-1. to one. Your, your pitching staff is going to have to pick up for your offense every once in a while. And, and after getting those four runs early, the offense kind of went into a little bit of a catatonic state. <laughs> they just couldn't get anything going against the Braves' bullpen. The Phillies did just fine against Bryce Elder, who's a very good starting pitcher for them. But the bullpen stymied the Phillies for much of that game. But sometimes your offense gets you four runs early. And the pitching staff has to make that hold up. And Rob Thompson was trying to manage this game to win it four to two or win it four to three or find a way to win a low scoring game. You're going to have to win some low scoring games in the playoffs. But that's what I mean. Like this game had that intensity to it. And Rob Thompson was making decisions like it was a playoff game. And I think it's great that the Phillies came out on top in this simply because it did kind of give them like a little bit of a dry run. They could get that feeling back from last October. Like this is what it feels like. These are the, these are the decisions that are being made. These are the types of plays you need to make to win a playoff game. 
And the Phillies hold a three and a half game lead right now uh, for the uh, actually it's a two and a half game lead over Arizona, who won on Wednesday. Now, the Phillies own the tiebreaker over Arizona, and they're also three games up in the loss column. So the Phillies have a game in hand uh, on they will play a four game series against the Mets, as I mentioned a moment ago. So they'll play on Thursday. Uh, the Diamondbacks do not. So if the Phillies beat the Mets on Thursday, there's the game in hand that the Phillies have. Uh, then they would be a full three games up in the standings. And actually, it would be four games games because the Phillies own the tiebreaker over the Diamondbacks for that top wildcard spot. And then add another game to that. The Phillies right now are uh, three and a half clear of the Chicago Cubs who are tanking right now. They lost to the Pirates on Wednesday. They fell a game behind Arizona. So the Cubs hold the third wildcard spot right now. They are one game up on Miami. So Miami on the outside looking in uh, after Miami lost on Wednesday. They are one game out of the wildcard race since Cincinnati is a game and a half back. San Francisco has essentially eliminated itself. So you can cross the Giants off at this point. The Giants are not going to get that third wild card. You basically have four teams now, the Diamondbacks, the Cubs, the Marlins, and the Reds, all vying for two wild card spots. And of course, the Phillies right now in a really good position, holding on to that top wild card spot. And Rob Thompson managed this game because they know how important it is to host that wild card round. And it looks for all the world like it's going to be against the Diamondbacks at the moment. But again, 10 more games, uh, or actually nine more games for, for most of those teams uh, to go here over the last uh, couple of weeks. Let's talk about this Aaron Nola start. It wasn't pretty. The first three innings were beautiful. His location in the first three innings with his pitches was vintage Aaron Nola. He was locating his fastball. He was locating his changeup beautifully. He was locating his curveball beautifully. I saw after the game, uh, Nola was talking about the fact that in in previous starts, he'd been trying to throw his curveball in certain locations. And in this game, he just decided, I don't care about location. I'm just going to throw the curveball as hard as I can, like make it as good a curveball as possible. And it worked. He, he got a lot of swings and misses on the curveball, got a lot of his changeup looked the best that it has in a long time. And he was down in the zone. He was not leaving pitches belt high. He wasn't leaving pitches chest high which against Nola, those balls go bye-bye, especially against this Atlanta team, which just oozes homers. It's amazing that they didn't hit one here on, on Wednesday. The Phillies did a pretty good job keeping them in the ballpark in this series, with the exception uh, of the second game of the series. Aaron Nola kept the ball in the yard. He went six innings, the first time in his last three starts that he'd gone more than five. He gave up just the two runs on six hits, eight strikeouts in six innings, and here's the most important thing, no walks. He was getting ahead of hitters. He was getting ahead 0-1. And in those first three innings, it looked really easy for him. Five strikeouts and three groundouts, eight of the first nine hitters. Went down in order. I mean, uh, eight of, so you had five strikeouts, three groundouts to, the first, to eight of the first nine hitters. That's when Aaron Nola, when he's at his best, that's what he's doing. And he was hitting the corners. He was staying out of the middle of the plate. Now, in the fourth inning, ran into some trouble, which is going to happen. Starting pitchers run into trouble. Starting pitchers give up back-to-back singles, especially against the best offense in baseball. And there is no room to breathe against the Atlanta Braves offense. It is 1-800-900 OPS after another in that lineup. There's nowhere to hide. There, there's nowhere to run. You, you got to make quality pitches from pitch one to pitch 100. 
and Nola gave up back-to-back singles to start the fourth inning, but managed to get out of it with only a run allowed, just one run allowed. We have seen the Rav fourth innings with Aaron Nola turn into disasters, turn into, we, we have seen him take a 4 nothing lead into the fourth inning and then give up a five spot. We've seen him do that. Didn't happen on Wednesday. That's a good sign. Ran into trouble in the fifth inning. Wiggled out of it. Giving up just one run. That's a good sign. Although it did look like in the sixth inning, Ozzie Albies uh, with the Braves down, or maybe it was the fifth inning, but Ozzie Albies was up and the Braves were were down four to two. And he hit a long fly ball to right field that Tom McCarthy, you could hear the dejection in his voice. And that ball is, oh, it's foul. Like the... The Albies home run. Albies, Albies knew it right away. He was standing at the plate. He didn't even move out of the box. But it looked, when he hit it on the broadcast, like the game was tied. And everybody's heart just sank. And then you realize, oh my gosh, he's still alive. <laughs> Nola is still alive. He did not give up the game-tying two-run home run. Uh, and then got Ozzy Albies to strike out and get out of that inning. And then uh, Nola, through six, was able to turn it over. Turn. This is what you're going to do in the playoffs. Nola's not going to go more than six innings in the playoffs. So you need your high-leverage relievers to get those last nine outs for you. And you're going to have to ask them to do it against the Braves if you want to get back to the World Series. And I'm really hoping that the light switch flicks on for this group at some point because right now, no lead is safe. Now, I remember that's how that's not how we felt early this season. When the Phillies went into the later innings with a lead, you really felt like this unit was going to lock it down. But that is not the feeling right now. Alvarado looked great in the seventh inning. Alvarado looked fantastic. It was really good to see him throw the way he did. 98, 99, 100 miles an hour. The cutter was 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 really dialed in. He wasn't walking guys. He had his command. Alvarado looked like October of last year, Jose Alvarado. He looked fantastic. And with a 4-2 lead, Jeff Hoffman comes in. And really, this is the most obvious high leverage setup man situation we've seen from we, we've seen Jeff Hoffman be used in we, we've seen him be used in some some pressure situations here but Rob Thompson used him as my right-handed bridge to Craig Kimbrell which is Sir Anthony Dominguez's job but today it went to Jeff Hoffman and that's what I mean like this this is a dry run how would Hoffman perform in this particular situation well he has been absolutely unhittable for like the last three months But he got hit around a little bit in this inning, gave up two hits, including an RBI single to make it four to three. So Rob Thompson had to go out with Matt Olson coming up and go get Gregory Soto. And you bring Gregory Soto in with runners on base. That is a recipe for trouble, man. But he did his job. Lefty on lefty, he got Matt Olson out without allowing the runner on third to come in and score. But then he has to face Marcelo Zuna, the righty. And Soto gives up a an RBI double off the wall to Marcelo Zuna that almost left the yard, almost gave Atlanta the lead. And then suddenly you're going into the ninth inning and the game is tied 4-4. The Phillies blow the 4-0 lead. The, the bullpen gives up two runs in the eighth inning and can't seal the deal. So then Craig Kimbrell comes in. And this is where the game truly got wacky. Kimbrell comes in and walks Sean Murphy to start the inning with yet another pitch timer violation for Craig Kimbrell. I think I saw that was his 11th this year. My man pitches like two, three innings a week, and he's got 11 pitch timer violations. Like, bro, get rid of the ball. You cannot walk the leadoff man in a 4-4 game in the bottom of the ninth to this team. 
Leadoff walks kill. And then Luke Williams comes into pinch run. He steals second. Michael Harris strikes out. Williams steals third. So now you've allowed this kid, Luke Williams, to steal second and third and put himself into scoring position where a well-placed ground ball or a fly ball to the outfield wins the game for the Braves. So you have Orlando Arcia up against Craig Kimbrell, and he hits into what turned out to be the play of the game, a a, it was such an interesting location on the field. I thought it was a good thing that Nick Castellanos went over into foul territory and caught the ball because I did think Luke Williams would try to tag up, and I thought it was close enough that will, that Castellanos would throw him out. Now, listening to the players, listening to John Cruck on the broadcast, listening to everybody else scream, no, 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 don't catch it, hoping that he would drop it, clearly I was in the minority there. And I, it would have looked really stupid if uh, if Castellanos had caught that ball, but uh, allowing Luke Williams to tag from third and score the winning run on a ball that was foul, that if he'd let it drop would have gone as a strike and they could have continued to go after Orlando Arcia, who um, just, you know, has a OPS in the high 700s, which on the Phillies would be, you know, make him a cleanup hitter or a number five guy, but it makes him the worst hitter in the Braves lineup, which is just, which is just amazing. But in my, and from where I stood, I thought that Nick Castellanos was in a good position and I thought there was a chance that Williams wouldn't even tag, but that if he did, it was not a deep fly ball. It was kind of mid. And if that ball was in fair territory, I would have, I don't think I would have tagged Williams up, but the fact that it was in foul territory, Williams, uh, uh, Castellanos was kind of drifting toward the line, at the, toward the stands as he caught it, but Castellanos was under control and he did a spin and fired a strike to Garrett Stubbs to nail Luke Williams at the plate and send the game into extra innings. Just a tremendous play by Nick Castellanos. And after the game, Nick Castellanos is one of one of the more hilarious people in the world, and, and not in a way where he would make you laugh, but just the, the man's brain works differently. Talking about a voice inside him that told him to catch the foul ball and not let it drop. Like, he's he's literally saying, I hear this voice when I'm at the plate sometimes, and it tells me when I'm ahead in the count 2-0, and oh, okay, you got to swing at this next pitch. He calls it like an evil voice. This little evil voice is the one that causes him to swing at all those sliders out of the strike zone or to continue to swing at the first pitch over and over and over again, even though it's not working. There's this little voice. It's an evil voice that apparently crawls inside his his head like a little earworm and gets in there. Like Khan's device in, in Star Trek, uh, that Star Trek movie where he put the earworm inside those guys, right? <laughs> you know? And... Uh, yeah, and, and so Castellanos heard the voice. It, it told him, you know, he was saying, you know, I, I'm probably going to drop it. I should drop it. I should just let it drop. And then the voice told him, catch the ball and throw him out. Well, it worked. <laughs> and from where I sat, I thought it was the right decision. It made sense to me. And it kind of took me by surprise that everybody was yelling, uh, no, 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 that it was a bad play. But I guess it did. It required a perfect throw from Castellanos to get him out. Castellanos is not known for gunning runners out. He's not known for piling up outfield assists. But he did, in this case, sending the game to the 10th inning. And then Matt Strom finished things off. He let the zombie runner score in the 10th. But Matt Strom did a decent job closing things out. But a, a shaky outing from the bullpen there. Now, in the in the Phillies half of the 10th inning, it looked like they were going to waste yet another zombie runner on second. We saw it happen in the two games the Phillies lost an extra innings at home last week to the Braves. They had that zombie runner on to start the bottom of the 10th and didn't score it either time. 
And that's been a recurring theme for this team. They have had huge problems in extra innings getting that zombie runner in because I wrote about this for, I think I wrote about this for the good fight is where I wrote this. It's fundamentals. The Phillies are a team that hits a lot of home runs, but their their plate discipline is not the best. And when they get into hitters counts, they tend to jump at things. They hit a lot of ground balls. They strike out a lot and they don't do the little things sometimes that are required of you in a late and close game. So if Atlanta scores a run in the top of the 10th and you're in the bottom of the 10th inning, you start with that zombie runner on second base. You got to, you got to make, if you're going to make an out, you've got to hit the ball to the right side of the, uh, of the field and get that guy over to third. And then that next guy has to hit a fly ball somewhere or has to hit a hard grounder somewhere and hope it goes through. But you got to put that ball in play. You can't strike out with a runner on third and less than two outs in a late and close game, in a game with playoff implications or a playoff game itself. And the Phillies have struggled in those spots repeatedly this year. And it looked like it was going to happen again. You had Garrett Stubbs starting second inning as the zombie runner. Kyle Schwarber walked to put runners on first and second, but then Trey Turner grounds into a double play. Man, he was just smacking the ball into the ground all day on on Wednesday. Um, You had Austin Riley step on third and then throw to first baseman Matt Olson for the double play. So now you got Kyle Schwarber on second base. They pinch run run Johan Rojas for Schwarber. But then Bryce Harper walks. He got first and second with two outs. Rojas and Harper steal second and third. So now you have first base open so AJ Minter intentionally walks Alec Bohm and that brings up the lefty Bryson Stott who has been in a in a funk here in the month of September hitting under 200 he looks exhausted and he looks a little lost at the plate in the line drives have not been there he's been hitting more ground balls lately more lazy fly balls we haven't seen him hit a lot of line drives over the course of these uh last 20 days since the the calendar flipped to September but uh in the bottom of the 10th against a very very tough lefty for left-handers to hit. Bryson Stott doubles down the left field line. He didn't smoke it, but he hit it in a perfect spot. Scored two runs, and the Phillies go on to win 6-4 to four, thanks to an incredibly clutch hit from Bryson Stott. Castellanos, a little bit more on his big game. The, the, the little evil voice in, in his brain uh, was telling him to do good things in his first two at-bats. Two home runs in his first two at-bats. One to center, one to right. When Castellanos is hitting the ball that way, He is super dangerous. That's how you know he's locked in. He now has 27 home runs on the year, 99 RBIs. That is too shy of his career high, which he set back in 2017 with Detroit. Since being moved down to the bottom third of the order, he's at five home runs in his last eight games and is hitting 311. He has seven extra base hits over that time with 14 RBIs in 12 games. And here's the thing about the Phillies batting order you're going to get opportunities to drive guys in no matter where you are. Now, I heard on the postgame show, he was basically saying it's really different for him being down there because it feels like, you know, the games have, he doesn't get to hit until like the third inning a lot of times, like half the game disappears before he gets a chance to hit, he says. So um, it's a little bit of an adjustment, but he has really taken to it well. And when he's hitting like this, it's so important for this lineup to have a right-handed power bat in there. And at the end of the day, it could we could be looking at Castellanos's home run totals being somewhat close to what Reese Hoskins would have given them. So, uh, some it's an important thing that Nick Castellanos uh, is doing what he's doing. Some dry spells here in the second half for sure, uh, but he's hitting well again. 
Red hot, hitting at the bottom of the lineup. There's no need to move him up. Just keep him right where he is. And uh, let's see if we can't get Brandon Marsh. Brandon Marsh had a good day at the plate. I think he had three walks in in this game uh, on Wednesday. That means he's seeing the ball a little bit better. A lot of strikeouts for him in September. And Bryson Stott not able to really get his hits like he had been earlier in the season. But, um, you know, kind of a little bit of a grind at this point in the season. So maybe those young guys wearing down just a little bit. All right, let's talk really quickly about the the second game of the series, which the Phillies lost 9-3. to And for me, this is all Spencer Strider. And I wrote about this for The Good Fight. I wrote about his dominance of the Phillies in his first two seasons in the big leagues for The Good Fight. Um, He went seven innings on Tuesday night, gave up just four hits, one of them a three-run homer to Bryce Harper. But Atlanta was up seven to nothing at the time. He had 11 strikeouts and no walks. In his previous start in Philadelphia last week, the Phillies made him throw 36 pitches in the first inning, but only got one run. He then went another six innings and didn't give up anything after that. Four hits allowed, nine strikeouts, two walks in that start. Earlier this year, he beat the Phillies 4-2, to two, went six innings of one run ball, eight hits, no walks, nine strikeouts. And in his first start against the Phillies this year, he went six innings, two runs, two hits, nine strikeouts, one walk. So that's a 2.42 ERA, 26 innings and seven runs allowed with 37 strikeouts and three walks this season. And I don't think those numbers do justice to just how dominant he's been. I went and I looked this up today. Going back to 1920, so we're talking about 103 years of Phillies baseball. Strider's career 1.90 ERA is tied for eighth lowest among pitchers with at least seven starts against the Phillies. Since 1980, that 1.90 ERA ranks third. Only Henderson Alvarez and John Lester are ahead of him. But since 1920, That 1.90 ERA is tied for eighth lowest. Now, here's some other numbers. His 13.7 strikeouts per nine against the Phillies is far and away the best over the last century, topping Hugh Darvish's 11.44. And his 450 OPS allowed is also the best of any starting pitcher with at least seven starts against the Phillies going back to 1920. And only Dennis Eckersley's 7.36 strikeout-to-walk ratio against the Phils is better than Spencer's 7.2. In other words, Spencer may be the single most dominant force Phillies hitters have seen against them in the last 103 years. That's how good Spencer Strider has been against the Phillies. Now, of course, the Phillies got to him in the playoffs last year, and I know a lot of you were responding by saying, Doesn't matter if it's in the playoffs. Bear in mind, Spencer Strider was making his maybe second start. I think it was his first start, but it might have been his second start. Coming off the DL or the IL with a strained oblique. He was not 100%. He was not the Spencer Strider we have seen in his other eight appearances against the team. So the Phillies were fortunate to hit a 94-mile-an-hour meatball right down the middle. Reese Hoskins smoked it, and it's one of the greatest memories that we will ever have as Phillies fans. But I don't think we can count on that again. <laughs> you know, they got to find a way to beat this guy when he's healthy. And you, I guess you would think that at some point the luck's got to change, right? Like, some something's got to flip here. He can't be this good against them forever, especially when you consider the fact he hasn't been untouchable against other teams in the start prior to his last two against the Phillies, he went just two and two thirds innings against the Cardinals. They got him for six runs, six hits and five strikeouts with three walks. He has had nine starts this year in which he's given up at least four runs. 
And he's had five starts in which he's given up at least five runs. His 3.73 ERA is good, but it ranks just 14th among qualified NL starters. In fact, Bryce Elder, the guy the Phillies beat around earlier today, has the best ERA among qualified Brave starters at 3.5. And Charlie Morton is better than Spencer Strider at 3.66. So they got to figure something out here. And I know maybe it's just there are bad matchups. The the Phillies swing and miss a lot. You got to really make Strider throw his pitches. You know, I mean, you got to foul balls off with him. And the Phillies don't do that. They just miss. Or they hit weak grounders. They put weak balls in play. But the Phillies don't foul a bunch of balls off against him. They have quick at-bats against Strider. And they got to take advantage in the first inning. When they have a chance to get him in the first inning, and we know this about good pitchers, sometimes if you're going to get to them, you have to do it early. You have to do it in the first inning. And that that is certainly the case with Spencer Strider. Uh, one other note from the game on Tuesday, that was, the, that was the experiment of Christopher Sanchez and Michael Lorenzen piggybacking. We're not going to see that again. Uh, Christopher Sanchez only went three innings in this one. They're trying to really limit his his innings workload, even though he has shown no signs of slowing down. But it seems it seemed to me that it was silly uh, to take Christopher Sanchez out after three innings, even though he had given up three runs in those first three innings. But uh, Sanchez came in. Uh, sorry, Lorenzen came in in the fourth inning and was abysmal through 37 pitches in that inning and got one out. He didn't record that out until that 37th pitch and turned a 3-0 deficit into a 7-0 deficit. And Lorenzo just couldn't put anybody away. Left some balls out over the middle of the plate. Uh, As Matt Gelb noted in a story that came out on Wednesday, he didn't get a swing and a miss until his 25th pitch. He just, Braves hitters were just fouling balls off, fouling balls off. So he kept saying to himself, well, I got to expand the zone. I got to throw pitches out of the strike zone because I can't get them to swing and miss at strikes. And then he started walking guys. And then he starts, okay, well, I can't walk anybody else. So I got to come over the plate. And Braves hitters were teeing him up. It's hard to believe that he threw a no hitter. It's hard to fathom that he threw a no hitter. Since that no-no, a 9.23 ERA in 23 and a third innings, 40 hits allowed, and 14 walks allowed. That's 54 hits and walks in 23 and a third innings since the no-hitter. So Thompson said before the game on Wednesday that uh, Lorenzen will take a couple of days off. He'll then pitch out of the bullpen, probably an inning or two, and probably before Christopher Sanchez starts on Sunday. So it sounds like they're no longer going to go with the piggyback idea that Lorenzen, they're going to try and maybe just use him for one inning, two innings, and see if his stuff doesn't play up a little bit. That when he was a reliever... He could throw 96-97. As a starter, he's throwing like 93-94. And he's he just doesn't have the movement. He doesn't have the stuff to get swing and miss as a starter or as a multi-inning guy. So the hope is that this wasn't a wasted trade at the trade deadline, that Lorenzen can see an uptick in his velocity and his stuff by using him for just an inning here and there. And if they can, well, then that's another guy that you have in addition to Sir Anthony Dominguez and Jeff Hoffman from the right side that you can bring in in a close and late situation. So fingers crossed uh, that he can do that. Well, as the Phillies make a push here to get that top wild card spot, uh, they're getting closer every single day. They are in Atlanta as we speak right now. Took the first game on Monday night. And uh, we get a chance to talk with Kevin Stocker, former Phillies uh, shortstop, and now he's on the radio team with Scott Fransky, doing a terrific job there. Kevin, thank you so much for coming on. Hitting season, how are you? Good, good. Yeah, thanks for having me. 
It's a pleasure to talk to you, and um, I want to talk about the way this team has been playing here in September. I know the record doesn't necessarily reflect it. It's been kind of an up-and-down start to the month, but uh, getting that series win in St. Louis over the weekend was really big coming off that Atlanta series at home, and then getting the first game in Atlanta with that power display they showed on Monday right, night and right. uh, the good start from Zach Wheeler. And it's looking more and more inevitable that they're going to get that top wild card. Is that how you see things playing out right now? Oh, of course. I mean, we're, we're very confident in the guys, the way that we see them playing. Um, one of the things that stands out to me, especially in this month, it's so tough because when you hold that spot or you're fighting for a wild card spot, and I've talked about this a lot, it's really easy to get caught up in scoreboard watching. And, and what happens to players, and I remember going through this in 93, is you get tight and you start worrying about your swing or how you're pitching, things like that. This team, because of the veterans, it seems that they're always loose. Like they don't seem to kind of run into that problem. Now, granted, it'd be great, like their last homestand stunk, right? It'd be great to go in there and, and just sweep. Things like that aren't happening. They're playing kind of that 500 baseballs where they're at, which is fine, but there's no panic. And so when they come into like last night, they come out, they play their regular game. Everybody contributes. It's fun to watch. That's the key when you have a couple weeks left is to not get tight, try not to scoreboard watch too much and just play your game. And they're doing a good job of that. I think offensively, they've been pretty consistent, really, since August. I don't, maybe September, the numbers haven't been quite what they were in August, but they've faced right. better pitching here over the last couple of weeks. The starting pitching themselves, I think, has been what's a little bit concerning. Understanding that most of the other National League wildcard teams and even most of the other National League playoff teams also have their issues with pitching. Right. They really, Phillies, as far as I can see right now, I feel really good about two of their starters, Zach Wheeler, Ranger Suarez, the other guys, and Chris Sanchez, I guess, but because Chris Sanchez is so young, he's past his innings limit, you don't know how much he's got left in the tank. The postseason rotation, when they get there, seems kind of up in the air right now. How, in your mind, how do you think Rob Thompson is gonna, is gonna piece this out? Well, I, I think Rob, and this is basically is what I think, I think Rob is one of those guys that like looks, he'll say, look, there's a value to experience. And I agree with it. All right. So like take Aaron Nola, for example, who I know has had this up and down year compared to his other years, he's been struggling. And right now he's kind of searching over the last three games, but you still have to look at Aaron's experience and what he's done uh, in the big leagues, in the postseason. There's a value to that because you throw out Christopher Sanchez, who's been great. I think he's been one of the best surprises for this team and really a necessity when he came up and filled that five spot. Yeah. But he's never been in that big limelight game in a wild card game or a playoff game. And there's a question on how that will go. You don't want to just throw somebody in the fire and then just destroy their confidence. Whereas somebody like Aaron Nola, so forth, uh, Zach Wheeler, they have that experience. And I think that'll play out. Now, who do I think it's hard to say, you know, you look at the playoffs, who's he going to put out there? I think he'll run his horses out there. I just don't think I like Ranger. I like what you said. I think Ranger's getting stronger. His last outing was great. I do think he's in the top three. For me, I still would put Aaron in there. I think it might be a Wheeler, a Nola, a Ranger type of combination, or maybe you do Ranger before Nola, things like that. I still think that those three in their experience are guys that Rob Thompson will lean on. Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't mean he's not going to lean on um, his other guys are going to have to step up. Look at what Walker's done yeah. in the win column. Yes, it's, it's hard because he goes out there and he does it in a weird way. He gets a ton of run support. Um, he'll give up some big innings. He'll get himself in and out of trouble. Uh, sometimes you start thinking, boy, do you really want to do that? But you have to look at the experience of it. I, I just think Rob is one of those guys that doesn't get too blown out of proportion about bad games when it comes to maybe an Aaron Nola or a Zach Wheeler last outing before last night. He just doesn't let that bother him. So 
it'll be interesting in the playoffs exactly how he does it. And I would imagine, and this was the case last year, that once you get into the postseason, even for somebody like Aaron Nola, the leash is going to be that much shorter. Uh, he can't let Aaron Nola work through and, and have those those problem innings, which is what we've seen from Nola. Nola hasn't had a whole lot of starts where he gives up a run in the second, a run in the fourth, a run in the fifth. You know, it's four runs in the fourth or five runs in the fifth, and it's a blow-up inning that, you know, maybe that's maybe that's easier to see coming in the playoffs. And, and, and if you've got some extra starters like Lorenzen, like if Chris Sanchez isn't starting, he's in the bullpen, you can piggyback Aranola, you can piggyback Taiwan Walker and have those guys ready to go. And maybe, Kevin, that's an advantage the Phillies have over teams like the Dodgers or like the Cubs who are really struggling to put together a starting rotation. Yeah, I, I would be careful with that, with the, with the, you know, saying, hey, Aaron, you can't go out there and get yourself in and out of trouble because you still have, it's a lot of games. If you want to go through and get to the World Series, you still have a month of baseball to play. To go out into the wild card series or the next series and burn a bullpen really early, whatever it is, I think is trouble. I still think guys like Aaron have to step up. There's a point where they do have to step up. Now with Aaron, I don't know if you know, in the last couple of games, one of the issues I think Aaron has had has just been a ton of traffic, right? So he gets two or three guys on, and then the pitch timer or whatever runs in, that's where he runs into some trouble. And that's one of the things he, I think you can watch with Aaron. I still think, I think his leash would be longer than somebody like a Christopher Sanchez, who's been pitching really well, just based mm-hmm. on experience. But the, one of the benefits the Phillies have going into uh, October is they actually have the least amount of bullpen innings pitched, yeah. right? So if you look at last year in the World Series, it was Houston and the Phillies. And those two are one and two with the least amount of bullpen innings. What that tells you is the starters tend to go deep. And I think that's important because when, the, when you get to late October, that's when you can start going, okay, we're in a fifth inning, high leverage situation. Let's bring in an Alvarado. Let's bring yeah. in, you know, somebody like a Kimbrel in the sixth. You know, you can do things a little different only if you've got bullpen arms that are ready to throw. And I think the Phillies are set up pretty well that way. Yeah, I mean, you would think looking at the bullpen, they're fully healthy, which is yeah. something they really haven't been able to say and really few bullpens can say at, as you approach this time of year. And if, yeah. if, the, if the main four guys pitch like they're capable – of. You already have Jeff Hoffman, who has been such a huge surprise. Matt Strom is a guy, the type of guy they didn't have last year. And you're probably going to add Lorenzen and maybe Christopher Sanchez to the bullpen. It has a chance to be a real strength like it was last year. But people tend to forget that last September, the bullpen had its struggles until the calendar flipped to October. And then they really seem to figure it out. So it can change on a dime. It can. And, and I always look at October as a whole separate season, not yeah. just another month. Right. So that's why... It's so important, like even when we're around the guys and the press, we we like to talk about, you know, games and scenarios. We scoreboard watch. I mean, we're looking at the scoreboard. We talk about it. But it's so important for the team to understand. And Rob Thompson is really good at this. And he, even with us as press, I mean, he's like, hey, look, we got to get there first. Let's just think about the first couple, you know, this next two weeks. And then when you flip the clock, like you said, into October in the pen, it, it's the same with a player. Because I remember doing that in 93 you know, expos were coming for us, man. They were coming yeah. hard. And it was like, all we ever heard <laughs> is players. And I remember Paul Molitor saying it was some of the best advice I ever heard. He said, look, you can't avoid it. You can't avoid scoreboard watching and it's everywhere. So don't waste your energy doing it. Just look at it, see it, and then just try to go out there and play with it. But once you got to the playoffs, man, it was, it was so much fun and relieving not to care anymore about what this team does or that team does or your own stats. It was literally if you're hot, it's kind of like if you're hot, give them the ball, right? Yeah. So in this case, whoever can win the game, win it. That's why I love to say separate those seasons. So to your point about the bullpen, 
I think it's the same thing. You get to October, you're in the playoffs. It kind of resets everybody's mind a little bit. Same with the guys in that bullpen. And that's maybe why we saw what we saw last October. The Phillies in previous September's had just had so much trouble getting over the hump, and then they finally do. And then they, and then like you said, I'll bet you that's exactly what they kind of said. Like, okay, now we don't have to worry about any of that other stuff anymore. It's just us playing our game. Yeah, yep. that's really fascinating. I, I want to ask you um, about Johan Rojas, who has really started to come on here. I mean, he's been a good offensive player since they brought him up, but I think more than anybody expected. And the defense yep. has been as advertised. It seems like he's starting to get in the starting lineup a little bit more now. He, of course, had the big two-run home run on Monday, had a good series in St. Louis. Is he? Rob Thompson has been trying to use platoons for much of the season, getting Jake Cave in there. And I know when Bryce Harper can't play first base and he has to DH – Rob Thompson's options are a little bit more limited. But when the playoffs roll around here, do you see a scenario where Bryce Harper is playing first base every game? And do you think then Johan Rojas has worked himself into the starting lineup pretty much every day, no matter who's pitching? Uh, Yes. Yes, I do. I I think last night's lineup is probably, if I had to choose a lineup, that would be the lineup that I would go with. Now I'm saying that. (laughs) I just think, I think, yeah, I think Rojas has earned uh, or it's shown, you know, hey, look, I'm a rookie, but he's getting more playing time, and they're going to need him in center field. He is such an asset in center field. When Bryce can play first, and he does a he does a pretty good job over there at first base, it sets up really well against right-handers. Now, against lefty, it's a little different. Mm-hmm. Brandon's been really struggling, Marsh, who I love Brandon. I know I, you know, he, right now he's going through a little spell where he's trying to mentally get through it, him and Stott kind of the same way. And I, I, I target that as – that September race we were just talking about, you know, trying to scoreboard watch, getting over that hump against lefties is the trick. You know, what do you do then? I still think Rojas has earned that right to be out there. Now, if he doesn't start in a game, I suspect he would be in by the fifth or sixth, kind of into that. You know, if we have a chance to that, we're going to pinch run now, or we're going to maybe do a defensive sub earlier, but he's such a great kid. I, you know, I met him. I don't know when he first came up, I went up and tried to introduce myself and, and I said, Hey, I'm Kevin. He said, hey, I'm Rohan. And I met him. Okay. So just the other day, I'm in the dugout and he came right up to me and he says, Hey, I'm Johan Rojas. I like literally. And he shook my hand and I said, <laughs> I said, we've met, you know that, right. But he's still learning this, but he's just such that, that smile yeah. kid all the time. And, and uh, he's been playing great baseball. I do think he's worked himself into some, a, a lot of playing time in the playoffs for sure. And the confidence seems to grow with every button of his shirt that comes unbuttoned further down, <laughs> like his, like his buddy. Nick oh, Castillon. now don't be talking like that. Now that, that's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, as far as like who the Phillies might play in the postseason, we're kind of putting the cart before the horse, and maybe it's stupid to do that. But as fans, we can afford to do sure. that. And you're looking at these other teams who could potentially come into Philadelphia for a wild card series. Is there a team that you would least want to face or that you Ooh, think presents the most matchup problems for the Phillies in a wild card series? Boy, that is a really good question. It, uh, well, the Brewers are going to win, right? So let's just say it because the Brewers, I think, are a little bit scary. But they're going to win their division. Um as of late, Miami has always been a team that you just – I think they're the one team that's not really intimidated by the Phillies. What I mean by that is the Phillies – you saw last night. These guys hit home runs. That's how their offense is built. Um, the Marlins, for whatever reason over the years, could care less about that. They, yeah. they just seem to be able to come in and put that aside. They've got a lot of swagger. I think to, to face the Phillies, you have to have some of that swagger and confidence. Arizona's playing well. They have a lot of speed. I just don't know on the road and coming into Philly that they're up for that with a lot of their young guys. And the Cubs right now are just tanking. And I, the Cubs could be tough too, but I'm not sure, like you said earlier, where their pitching is. So if I had to choose one, it would probably be the Marlins to me that seem to pose the biggest threat. In saying that, Sandy Alcantara being hurt 
hurts them a lot. I mean, mm. he's a he's a guy that the Phillies always face and have always had challenges with. But yeah, so that's the team I think out of all the teams would probably, in my mind, give the Phillies a little bit of trouble. Last question for you. Uh, my ears were burning a couple of weeks ago when you were on the radio broadcast talking with Scott Fransky about the vibes uh, situation. Oh, yeah. I wrote an article for Billy Penn with uh, that Temple uh, University professor. I interviewed him on the podcast and wrote the article based off of the interview about uh, what vibes are in sports and how the Phillies vibes. Were. This is during August when everybody was just feeling amazing and you had all those home games and the Trey Turner ovation and all that. And I thought your conversation with Scott about your experience like in, in the dugout being in the midst of vibes, be they good or bad, was really interesting. And I want to go back to 93 with you because it, fe- sure. it almost as a fan, you could kind of feel even in spring training, like the vibes with the team was a little different, different than 92. And then in 94, the vibes were different. You know, it wasn't quite it didn't quite have the same feel and you returned much of the same team. But things were different in 94. And so just your experience as a player and understanding vibes with sports and, and how that plays into your performance on the field. Right. So it's, it's an interesting thing. And I like the word vibe and then maybe it's a little bit, um, well, it is what it is. It's a yeah. kind of a young term, but yeah. it has to do basically with the atmosphere within your team. And, and I know analytics and statistics play such a huge role nowadays and that's fine, but there's no way to measure the chemistry or the vibe of a team in relation to the crowd or where you're playing. Okay. So in Philadelphia, Clearly, there's been a vibe. It's nationwide. Everybody knows about the fans and their reaction with the, with the team. But to understand how when you go, like when I went and played in, I didn't know. Like I came up with the Phillies. I knew the Philly fans. They knew me. That's what I knew. I yeah. knew that particular vibe, the intensity, how the crowd loves hustle and they appreciate that. I went down and played in Tampa and in St. Petersburg, and they, they didn't even know there was a baseball team down there. To go <laughs> in there and realize there was no real relationship with the fans and the team. Um, I ended up going out to Anaheim and the vibe out there was so laid back that the crowd would show in the third and leave in the seventh. And we as players would feel that mm. like you'd start the game with no fans and then they're leaving in the seventh. We'd look up and you'd say, what's going on? Almost like they didn't care about us. And that it really does affect a team in a good and bad way. OK, so like the Dodgers feel it every day. They feel that vibe. I, I just thought it was interesting. And I think it, in that game when I was talking with Scott Service out in Seattle and he's he's been all, you know across the nation and coaching and so forth was. On the West Coast, this is how he kind of said, on the West Coast, they show, whether you win or lose, they'll show early. And if you're losing, they'll still like you, but then they'll just leave early. But they don't, you know, they don't hold it against anybody. And that's fine. And you feel that as a player. You go to the Midwest. In fact, we were just in like St. Louis or you go to Chicago. They're intense. They come. They love their team. They show up, win or lose, they'll be there. The Cardinals the other night were knocked out. It was a packed house. They were there for their team, even though the Cardinals were out of it, right? So they're good vibes there. That's fine. You come to the East Coast, man, you got to win. You come out here, it's like, hey, we're going to come either way, but we're going to let you know when we're not happy with how you're playing. To clarify that, you could be playing poorly, but if you hustle and give 100% and admit where you're at and you get involved with the fans, they'll love you for it. And and those vibes you feel as a team. I know this is a long answer, but in 93, we had specific roles. The guys got along great. We could argue with each other, but we could also love each other. And that's a vibe. And I think it's really important um, that each team feels that. 
Well, it's I think the vibes with this 2023 team are certainly much stronger this September than they've been in previous Septembers. Things seem like they're heading in the right direction. Uh, and uh, we'll see how, as we're talking here, these last two games in Atlanta have yet to play out. We'll see if the Phillies can maybe win this series in Atlanta against yeah, the Braves baby. team where the vibe maybe in Atlanta right now is, hey, we clinched the division. They kind of maybe are on a little bit of a cruise control uh, heading down the stretch based off the series in against Miami. And, uh, you know, we still remember the 2011 Phillies struggling down the stretch after they kind of clinched everything, too. Mm-hmm. So, so you never know. So make sure you're catching the Phillies radio broadcast. Uh, Kevin Stocker doing a fantastic job with Scott Fransky. And, uh, Kevin, I really appreciate you coming on Hitting Season. Thanks so much. You got it, man. You bet. Thank you. Yeah, it was a lot of fun to talk to Kevin. And, of course, like we, like I said, we chatted uh, on uh, <clears throat> early Tuesday um, before uh, the, the two games uh, the Phillies finished up against the Braves. So we uh, weren't able to talk about what we saw here on, on Wednesday, but uh, still a lot of good stuff from, from Kevin, and uh, hopefully we'll be able to have him on again in the near future. All right, a couple other things before we wrap up. Uh, just kind of looking at uh, the NL MVP race right now. We just saw Ronald Acuna, and it seems impossible – for anyone else to win the MVP in the National League. He leads all National League hitters in on-base percentage, OPS, runs, hits, total bases, and he has 39 home runs, 100 RBIs, and leads the National League in steals with 67. Uh, He is going to become another 40-40 guy. He could be a 40-70 guy. Like, we've just, we've never seen a player have a season like this before. And yet... You look at wins above replacement leaders, Mookie Betts is ahead of Ronald Acuna by a couple tenths of a point. Now, again, you don't rely solely on wins above replacement, but it's a good place to start. And according to baseball reference, Betts is at 8.1, where you have Acuna at 7.9. And then I think it's really just between those two guys, but I think it's going to be such a, a, I think it's going to be a, a razor thin margin for whoever wins. Um, Matt Olson, it's hard to believe you got a guy who's hit over 50 home runs, has 130 plus RBIs, and he's going to finish a distant third in this thing. He may finish fourth behind Freddie Freeman, but Olson is at 6.8. Freddie Freeman's at 6.3. Uh, and then you have Hassan Kim of the Padres at 5.7. What a year he's had. Uh, Francisco Lindor is could probably going to be a 30-30 guy. It could be a 30-30 guy if the rest of the season finishes up, uh, the way he's been hitting, uh, in a, he's been pretty solid as of late. Fernando Tatis at 5.6, along with Lindor. Austin Riley, 5.3. Um, Corbin Carroll, the Diamondbacks rookie, uh, he's going to be, he, he became the first member of the 2550 club as a rookie. Uh, with Arizona here on Wednesday. He, he is tied with uh, Luis Arias at 5.0 wins above replacement. In, in my mind, I haven't seen Mookie Betts play enough. Like the Phillies just haven't played the Dodgers all that much. I've seen so much of Ronald Acuna that I, I just, the, with the numbers he's putting up, they're video game numbers. And I'm, Betts is a better defensive player for sure. But I got to tell you, I think, you know, Ronald Acuna is the best player on the best team and he's having the best, I think he's having the best offensive season. He is clearly objectively having the best offensive season uh, of any player in the National League. I think it's Ronald Acuna. I, I don't I don't think it's Betts. I know Betts was ridiculous in August. He had over 500 in August. I mean, just what you can't, who does that? It's just insane. The August that he had, but Acuna has, has just been doing it 
all year long. He's been so consistent, and he is he is just frightful. He is absolutely frightful in that lineup. So for my money, he's the National League MVP. It would take, I think it would take something significant for Mookie Betts to overtake him here in the final week and two, three days of this 2023 season that we have left. Looking at the uh, National League Cy Young Award, um, Kind of interesting. The it's 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 up in the air as far as I'm concerned. ESPN has something called the Cy Young Predictor, and they got a bunch of relievers who are like at the top of this list. I like Devin Williams. Alexis Diaz has had a great season for Cincinnati. They they are not winning a Cy Young over the starters uh, who could potentially get it. Uh, Spencer Strider, Justin Steele. Uh, Blake Snell of the Padres, Zach Gallen of the Diamondbacks, probably your four leading contenders. Uh, I know if there's been some Zach Wheeler rumblings in there. I think he's probably number five. Blake Snell's season has been, has been tremendously weird. He, he could be one of the, he's already won a Cy Young in the American league. Um, he could become, he could join elite company of winning a Cy Young Award in both the American League and the National League. Blake Snell has allowed a total of 18 earned runs in his last 22 starts. No pitcher in baseball history has ever done that before. He is the first pitcher with 225 or more strikeouts, 95 or more walks, and a sub-250 ERA in a season since Nolan Ryan in 1972. He has, he's walking. He's walked more than 95 guys this year. So what he does is typically he puts two runners on per inning with a walk and then strikes everybody out to get out of it. And I don't know how sustainable that is, but it's 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 Blake Snell and he's got a 2.33 ERA this season, despite the fact that he that he does all of this kind of stuff. I mean, it's just it's just wild what he's doing. Um, Batters have no hits in their last 39 at bats against Blake Snell. The longest streak by by a major league starter since he did it. For 41 straight in August and September of 2021. Like, what what is this guy? He's just, he's just, he's weird, man. This is a this is a weird pitcher, but truly has been utterly dominant at times. This the, just the swing and miss stuff that he has is is pretty unbelievable. So for for my money, I think I think it's Blake Snell. I do. I think it's Blake Snell over Spencer Strider. I think it's uh, Justin Steele's had a really good year, but I don't think he's been as dominant. You look at the numbers, he hasn't been as dominant. Um, and uh, and I don't think Zach Wheeler can can overtake him. I don't think Zach Gallen can overtake, over, overtake him. And if he wins the Cy Young Award here in the National League, he will join an elite group of, of, of starters, or elite, of pitchers to do this. Only six players have won the Cy Young Award in the National League and the American League. Gaylord Perry did it. Pedro Martinez did it. Randy Johnson, Roger Clemens, Roy Halladay, and Max Scherzer. Those are your guys. That's the company Blake Snell is trying to join. And by the way, Max Scherzer's a Hall of Famer. Roy Halladay's a Hall of Famer. Roger Clemens is a should-be Hall of Famer. Randy Johnson is a Hall of Famer. Pedro Martinez is a Hall of Famer. And Gaylord Perry is a Hall of Famer. Blake Snell's not going to be a Hall of Famer, but he's about to do a Hall of Fame thing. And, I mean, I think he is. I, I think he's the guy. I think Blake Snell is the guy. Just a, a very a crazy season, and, and there's really no other pitcher that stands out. Um, 
uh, as opposed to what what kind of weird numbers he's putting up. So um, kind of an interesting race there, and there's not a lot of starts left, so I think we're starting to get some clarity on who some of these guys uh, might be for these end-of-year award winners. So um, fun stuff there for the National League MVP and Cy Young. They should both be very close votes here uh, after the regular season is over. All right, everybody, that's going to do it for this edition of Hit and Season. And my thanks once again to Kevin Stocker for coming on and chatting some Phillies with me. Hopefully we'll be able to talk to him again down the road. Uh, and we are hitting this, we're hitting the stretch drive now, everybody. The Phillies have a four-game series against the New York Mets, who have been playing some decent baseball as of late, helping the Phillies out with some of these other National League wildcard contenders. But uh, the Phillies would very much like for them to kind of lay down here over these, uh, over these next uh, 10 games or so. The Phillies are going to play the Mets seven times here in their last 10 games, the first four of which will be at home starting Thursday at Citizens Bank Park. And then the Phillies, of course, will get three against the Pirates at home and then finish off the season with three in New York. New York's kind of had their number in recent years, but uh, with the Mets playing out the string, they would certainly like to play spoiler, but the Phillies have that look about them. They're playing, you know, it's 500 ball. They're not racing through September, but they're also not struggling mightily in September either, uh, and they have a very comfortable lead for that top wild card spot, certainly for any wild card spot. They're going to the playoffs. It's just a matter of can they get that top spot, and the schedule certainly, ha- it appears, is going to play into their favor here over the last 10 games. Thank you everyone for tuning in. We'll talk to you next time right here on Hit and Season.